0: you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.
1: Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men
0: and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace
1: in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Hi, everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number 36. Tonight, I've got a fantastic guest to share with you. His name is Paul Kudenek. Paul. Is a writer extraordinaire, and I say that because he's extremely prolific. Paul writes about anarchism, about individual liberty, and about taking back control of our lives from these parasites who seek to enslave and control us using their artificial systems. So, in part one, we discuss his background, what got him into writing. We talk a little bit about what anarchism is because it's a very misunderstood term. I myself did not resonate with it originally because I thought anarchism was all about tearing things down. But it's not really about that. It's about tearing down tyrannical structures. But then it's also about building things up, about building a better world for ourselves with radical individualism, community and self-sufficiency baked into the cake so we don't have to depend on tyrants. In part one we also discuss his book on the Rothschilds called Enemies of the People. We also discuss one of his fantastic articles that he wrote called Empire of Hypocrisy which is all about his research into the crown and the commonwealth and then in part two we start to talk more about the ethos and philosophy of Paul himself, about anarchism, about building parallel systems, we also talk a lot about spirituality and God and ultimately we talk about the hope for humanity, how we can get ourselves back from the brink and it starts with each and every one of us taking responsibility for living a principled life and I think that's a very powerful message for members in part two so if you're not a member and you would like to join us please come over to parallelmite.com where you can listen to the full episodes if you're not able to do that but you'd like to support the podcast in other ways simply sharing it with people who you think would benefit from hearing these conversations would be really useful also now if you do enjoy tonight's conversation you are going to absolutely love Paul's work his written work is fantastic it's available on multiple places I'll put the links in the description but I did just want to add that all of paul's fantastic books are available for free over on www.winteroak.org.uk so he gives all of his books away for free you can buy them in hardback or paperback if you want to but paul also very generously makes them available for free on the website so please go check them out in closing i hope you're all well healthy and reasonably happy i know you're gonna love this episode so thank you so much for joining us and like always i will see you in the next one Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. I'm here with a new guest called Paul Kudinek. Paul is an author of multiple books on anarchism and related topics. He also writes for... Uh, winter oak and you've got a substack channel uh, uh page as well paul uh so welcome to the show paul i'm really excited to speak to you i came across you not so long back uh, i'd seen winter oak many times shared by people but i'd never delved into it uh, and when i did i was pleasantly surprised to find somebody that really is aware of what's happening uh, and you've got a very very learned take on it so i think listeners are going to take a lot from this and i hope listeners will come across to discover your work because i think there's a lot there uh, so how's it going today paul how are you
0: Oh, uh, fine, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I've been enjoying a bit of
1: uh, fresh air and sunshine. So uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome, Paul, and thank you for joining us. Uh before we get into things, Paul, could you give listeners a bit of background just on you as a person and what led you to becoming an author and particularly writing on the topics that you do, which is anarchism and topics to do with human liberty and emancipation from uh tyrants, I guess.
0: Yes. Well, I've always um I've always been I sort of one of those people that campaigns against injustice and uh, and wars and and the rest of it. So, um, so uh, when I was, uh, oh, I'm living in France now, but when I was in England, I was uh, I was involved for many years in the uh, in the anarchist movement, mainly on a local level. Actually, where I lived in Sussex, um, spent, you know, it's been going on thirty years. That I've been doing that sort of thing. At the same time, I was a professional journalist albeit on a not nothing very spectacular just on a local newspaper but we, that means i've got the uh the sort of habit and the uh the craft of of knowing how to i think the right uh, the right journalism i suppose so and uh by uh, 10 years ago i had the opportunity to um grab a, a voluntary redundancy payoff and go and and go and write about what i actually interested me which was obviously more of the, uh, the anarchism side of it, rather than local fates and uh, car crashes and, and meat and drink of the, uh, the local journalism trade. Because I've got all this time to do that, I've been able to really immerse myself in investigating a lot of areas, and lot, a lot of what lies behind the headlines and the subject matter, the issues that um, we tend to see as separate issues, but which, gradually, the more you look into it, you, you realise that they're all symptoms of the same thing. Anyway, that's... Uh, And maybe we'll get into more of that later. Yeah, I
1: think in part one, Paul, I'd love to just explore some of that research that you've done. And then maybe in part two, go towards the anarchism specifically and and talk about solutions on both a personal level in terms of what we can practically do. And then also to get your take on the spiritual side of things as well, which we really like to talk about on this podcast to get an idea of how you manage that. Uh, But for listeners who are not aware of what anarchism means, can you give as your own personal definition, Paul, because we all have misconceptions around this. I mean, for me, anarchism always meant what, punks going around and smashing stuff up. That's what I thought growing up. I think it's a, it, it, it styled that way for an intention, but it doesn't mean that, does it, Paul? Uh, it means something completely different. And I'd love just to get your take as somebody who has been part of that scene as to what anarchism actually truly
0: means. The underlying idea of anarchism is that we don't need authority and we don't need governments and, and states in order to, to uh, direct our lives and force us to do certain things but we do that naturally that people naturally tend to go elaborate or cooperate with each other because they have to to survive and um, so that not only does uh, is the state authority unnecessary but it's also damaging because it, it destroys that organic togetherness that we have like all like all animals and Creatures and all parts of the living world have, where we have a, we should have a symbiotic relationship with each other as well, with the, as well as with the natural world. And these um, these fake structures, these artificial structures that are imposed on us, deliberately break that apart. Actually, so that we so that we become very dependent on on that system, and that we become disempowered and um, and be uh, victims of exploitation and control by people who who impose on us from above. Um, We're well, not all anarchists, not all people who call themselves anarchists understand that. And there are a lot of people out there who who, who term themselves anarchists or sometimes they call themselves um, anarcho-communists or you know whatever who who um who have lost track of what it's essentially about, I would say. So I, you know, I I think that that's obviously what the what the idea was meant to mean in the first place and and i'm sticking to that and um yeah that's what i mean by anyway
1: yeah i think it's i think today a lot of people probably come across the term most often and this is from my perspective is anarcho-capitalists there's a lot of people who are calling themselves anarcho-capitalists particularly in the financial sector uh where they want to keep all of the best bits of capitalism uh but then also have no statism so not the state there. And I don't really, I don't place myself with those people. I've never actually placed myself as part of any group. But uh, I resonated a lot with your work because you place a lot of it in natural systems. You talk about uh, how that that relationship that we need to have uh, to put ourselves in natural cycles. uh, And that if we do, as humans, we will cooperate. We will come together. And that's what I believe. Uh, I mean, I don't think I need the state to... To live here in my community with my neighbors to share produce to help each other out i don't need the state here to come and police that and uh, i think we've got a similar uh, view on that so i wanted to ask you paul do you have any what was your trajectory towards going towards that was there any personal experience that you had that kind of propelled you down that path maybe a set you you came to a realization in your own life was there anything that triggered it to make you more s- skeptical of the state and having a big state
0: I suppose there would be two things. I mean, back that one would be seeing what the state actually does, and the you know, seeing the way that uh, it stops people from expressing themselves, and and it, it, and seeing the way that it uh, it organises wars and uh, expects you to go along with it, and treats you as an outcast if you if if, if you dare challenge it. I think I had a, I already had a general feeling of a sort of. Uh, Repression coming from somewhere that I weren't, that I wasn't totally free to say what I what I wanted to say and to live the way that I wanted to live. I mean, that would even part of it. That even that feeling you have when you're young and you, you know everybody says you've got to go and get a job and a career and you've got to give up your freedom to be what you want, who you really are, in order to fit yourself into a mold. You've got to do that. You've got to have a mortgage so that you can have a family, and then you've got to raise kids so that you can send them to school to go the, through the whole same process as you, and it's just got to keep going. You haven't got any choice. So I, was, I mean, like a lot of teenagers, I had that, that reaction, which didn't go away in my case. Really, Although I ended up getting a uh, I did get up end up getting a job, but I, there was a resentment about the whole arrangement. And then I read some. Um, a, a friend gave me a book about anarchism. The first book I uh, read was um, by George Woodcock. It was um, it was a book about the classical anarchism, actually, which I very much agreed with, and I was reading. About about sort of nineteenth and early twentieth century anarchists principally who were setting out the sort of theory that I was explaining to you just now, and that really resonated with me and I thought well actually this is this is what I think and like you know, i didn 't know what anarchists really thought. I thought they were people like uh, Rick out of the young ones who it he was, it was a character on the television when I was growing up. he was just a bit of a, a bit of an idiot really, and uh, you know a naive and just sort of used this slogan. Without understanding what it meant, and I, di- I didn't understand all that, anything about anarchism really, until I started reading about it. And the more I read, the more I a realized that that's what I was, and b realized that there was the basis of something else there, basis of a I, I, what I wanted to do from the start was make a connection between anarchism and nature, which isn't always obvious in in anarchist texts. But I could see what you were just saying that it's. It's the same thing as saying we're part of an organic, an organic, organic being bigger than ourselves, and uh, I and mean, that's what I, that's basically the ideas I've been working on ever since, since uh, for the last almost thirty years or so on and off. Yeah,
1: yeah I think they made a really strong play at attaching or, or connecting ni- uh, anarchism to nihilism. That's what I thought growing up is that the anarchists were the nihilists who just wanted to destroy what there was because everything was meaningless. Uh, and you're saying it's not that at all. It's completely opposite. And ironically, the system that they've given us is pure nihilism and is a death-based system. So it, it's funny that they, they put the anarchists as the, the people who wanted to destroy and uh, tear everything down when actually what that's what they're doing. They're tearing down everything beautiful, everything that's good, everything that's moral, uh, and leaving us with this complete materialistic view of the world, which uh, it sounds to me like that is absolutely not what you're talking about.
0: No, but I... I that would come from is that a lot of uh, anarchists in the well still do in the past but talk about tearing down that the system which stops us being free and well, that's where that language is, came in that you know they they were describing the structures the art structures of artifice of death, of enslavement and saying no we've got to clear all that all that away but yeah there's been times when the emphasis is far too much on the uh, on the destructive side i suppose and gradually but it used, it used, they used to use the phrase love and rage in certain anarchist circles, which was, which was combining the two and seeing that they were two sides of the one coin. But there is that nihilistic strain, which you sometimes come across where they've, they've lost sight of the beautiful thing that we're supposed to be defending. And more recently, certainly lost sight of the fact that that beautiful thing is, is natural and organic. And there's a whole strain of so-called anarchists who are heavily into the sort of, uh, Transhumanism type thinking and um, you know fetishizing artifice and reconstructing humans on uh, as if as if every individual has the uh, opportunity to make a choice as to what they are and they can choose to be a you know a robot or whatever <laughs> a cyborg and you know there's a that's nothing to do with my type of anarchism so I'm not saying that doesn't exist but it's it's not what I'm it's not what I'm about promoting and. Uh, you know, what, a lot of what I've been trying to do is to, 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 to wave the flag for the, what I call real anarchism and so that people can still see it and people can still come to it and discover it without being put off by all these what, what I regard as non-genuine anarchists who are peddling something that is just sometimes quite off-putting and uh, not at all attractive.
1: Yeah, and I think that whatever we call what it is we're doing here, it has to be grounded in truth. Like it has to be grounded in truth, and nature is truth. So therefore, um, it, it I guess what they have done over the past hundred years is try to capture every movement that could potentially accept their power or threaten their control system. And a lot of the people out there today that see themselves as opposing the state are very much being funded and working for the state like they the groups that they ascribe to like for example extinction rebellion um, and <laughs> they are not working against the state They they are literally working for them they just don't know it and i mean i do a lot on this on this podcast about trying to expose some of the acts of history to do with the counterculture and different movements that have happened to show that many of these things were a part of the process of uh bestialization of man you know trying to take us to this really bestial type state where we just uh, we live for nothing uh, we've got no morals no principles no values and we become moldable into this robotic mind which is what you're talking about I mean we're, we are now there aren't we we're on the precipice of one world systems of uh, people believing that you don't human. that we don't need any human in us we can turn ourselves into whatever we want and chop parts off and add parts to us uh, so we really are on that precipice but uh, what I wanted to do, Paul, was maybe go into some of that research that you've done. You, you, you're prolific in, time, in terms of your work. You've got a ton of articles out there. You've got a ton of uh, books to get into. And I'll maybe bring a few of them out. But I thought maybe we could start with the Empire of Hypocrisy. Uh, and I wanted to just uh, find out a little bit more about what inspired you to write that. You was talking about how uh, the British Empire was really the the first massive attempt by these people to capture the globe uh, and then it expanded into the American empire and it's kind of taken us to where we are today. So uh, can we start there Paul with the empire of hypocrisy. Uh, how did you come about writing that and what went into the research behind it?
0: For a long time I thought that the, uh, the source of the uh, the oppressing power was was the USA actually you know and that's quite a common thing I suppose in the sort of uh, anti-war circles in, in in the UK is it? You know, there's all the you know, US air bases in Britain and the rest of it, and you can see the the Americanization of of Europe, Western Europe, at least since since the Second World War. Uh, but gradually, um, I think it was it was because of the uh, of the COVID thing really that I started uh, looking elsewhere because I noticed that um, the a lot of the the countries where the the Great Reset agenda all the uh, the lockdowns and the rest of it were being, was being imposed most with most enthusiasm were Commonwealth countries, not just Britain, but uh, Scotland and Wales were worse than England, I think, although I, you know, I wasn't there, but, uh, with Australia, New Zealand and Canada, all the three of those countries, they were really heading towards really dictatorial conditions. And, um, so I started, I started wondering whether, you know, what, what what's the Commonwealth, in fact? I mean, it's it, not something you talk about much when you actually live in England. It's just like there's a Commonwealth Games and stuff like that, you know, but it's just like, oh no, it just seems like, so it, they present it as just being this sort of happy family of countries that used to be in the empire, but now they're all free and, you know, they all, they all love the, the Queen as it was, and now the King, I suppose, would be the theory. But... Um, but when I when I started looking into it, I realised that it is there's whole structures behind it. It's all structures, and it's all linked into business, and um, big business. And I, I read through. Um, I think I read through all the Commonwealth declarations <laughs> since it was formed. You know, to, 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 to read what they're saying. Also, at the same time, I'd been reading uh, Carol Quigley, who's uh, who's, who's um who did amazing research into the uh, Anglo-American establishment. He caused it, and the beginnings of that establishment in Britain with the British Empire, which became the Commonwealth. And I and, and this this all fitted together, and I could see that how that uh, originally a sort of Victorian British um, conspiracy, imperialist conspiracy, had deliberately transformed itself into the Commonwealth. And through looking at these Commonwealth documents, I saw how that had then morphed itself. Into the globalization which we see today. And in fact, the heart of it wasn't really the USA, although it was a wing of it, but the heart of it continued to be London. And of course, that was confirmed uh, by the fact that it was uh, Charles who officially launched the, uh, the WEF's Great Reset. And that was a subsequent article. I think, I think that was, I think I wrote about the Commonwealth first and then about Charles. But uh, but it, it all started coming together. And uh, it, it, because it was quite new to me, because I was only discovering it, I was quite enthusiastic about sharing it with other, with other people because I imagined that other people didn't know either.
1: Yeah, and we've got this opaque structure where I'm sure you've kind of got onto the heart of this one where there's this thing called the crown. And you're like, well, who is the crown? Is it the monarchy or is it some banking factions or cabal that's behind the monarchy? Uh, But there is this concept of a crown that owns 89% of the land in Canada. It has absolute rights over all the land in the UK. The entire Commonwealth is owned by this entity called the crown. Now, I say the crown represents at least the city of London and the banking cartels that captured uh, Great Britain in general. And uh, there's that famous Rothschilds quote. And I know you did a book on the Rothschilds, which we can talk about later, where he said that they don't care which puppet is on the throne of the... Uh, the throne of england they control the money and therefore they control the country and i i think when you wrote this empire of hypocrisy you lay it out pretty well that that is how it works it's that the the people who have the money classes have captured this commonwealth system uh, and you know, I, I think yeah, the royal family are very rich and powerful, but I, I wouldn't necessarily they say they're they're at the top of it. Uh, how do you view that, uh, Paul? Having researched it, did you find find that you got to kind of a brick wall there where you couldn't get past the certain element? Because most people get stuck at the crown. Like, what does it even mean? Like, is it an in- is it a real person or is it a group of people?
0: Yeah, I mean it's uh, it is a mysterious idea. It's supposed to, um, uh, yeah. There's all sorts of theory, but it's what it's supposed to be. But I think you're right, actually. It's a, it designates not, it's not the royal family. I mean, they're quite specific about it. It's not the same as the king or the queen. I think it is just the power, the real power behind the throne, yeah. And which is, which is financial power without a doubt, which is, which came, which came through in the research on the Commonwealth. And a lot of things came together. And, uh, yeah, obviously, having having written more of a booklet than a book about the uh, Rothschilds, obviously, I came to the conclusion that they were quite important in all this. So, yeah.
1: And when it comes to this Commonwealth, uh, Paul, what would you say the overarching agenda with the Commonwealth is? Do you think that this was part of this push towards a one-world system or do you think that just happened as a consequence of it? Or do you think that there was always some... Kind of guiding ideology and uh, purpose behind this, like you know, was there an arc of history here to create this one world system, or is that something that's relatively new?
0: I think there was a whether whether at the beginning they ever imagined that they could end up having a world system. I don't know. I suppose it, any empire that expands to the extent that the British Empire expanded has got to be has got to at some stage there's got to be the realization that this could this could be a world system. I mean it felt like it was it was bigger effectively it was bigger than than the pink areas colored in the maps that we already that we always see because there was an informal empire as well, such as the history of Brazil, and there was um, British finance, particularly the the old Rothschilds of course were heavily involved there, for example, even though Brazil was never a British colony. So yeah, I'd have said it was implicit. I don't I mean, I've got no knowledge of whether the people that set out I mean, in the beginning would have thought it was going to be a world empire, but there's a logic that if you want to keep on expanding as much as you can, eventually you're going to be, you're going to have the whole world in your size. Yeah. I mean, the origin origins of the British Empire go before go back before the Rothschilds, of course, but um, I'd said it was still financially driven. I mean, not that not that particular family, I, I suspect, but um, well, no, because they, they didn't really emerge until later. So, but there was always, there was already that, City of London element, then back right back to right back to the time of Cromwell, when um, when that was one of the I've done I did some I've done some reading about that as well, and uh, I always I always had great sympathy with the uh, with the the Republican side on the in the English Civil War, especially the Levellers and the Diggers. But when when you when you look at the history of um, the way that that radical element in the English Revolution against the monarchy was put down. By Cromwell, and the fact that they uh, when the when the the last mutiny of the New Model Army radicals was put down at Perth, uh, um a big banquet was staged for Cromwell to celebrate this this event by the city of London, and uh, and the, and that whole that whole breaking from the old Stuart monarchy paved the way for for Britain to. Start getting involved in imperial um, conquests and expansion it started straight away, under the under the, uh, the well that was called the Commonwealth as well. <laughs> Maybe there is some sort of connection there actually. Yeah. So you can see that that was a with a common thread going right back through linking, obviously finance and British imperialism and the East India Company and the rest of it. it when the the motivation behind it was never was never the. Uh, Supposed motivation, whatever that was, to go and civilise the world and help those poor people in other countries to to live decent, decent lives, and you know that was the propaganda they were putting out there, which is the equivalent of the sort of foreign aid and lifting people out of poverty propaganda that they put out now. Development overseas, development, and so on. So it's always been a hidden agenda, which is just is just a material benefit for the for for for, for people, people wanting to make money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we did some, I did some work on on my podcast where I was looking into the development of the Bank of England and the City of London. uh, And that was a really interesting one. Uh, You mentioned Oliver Cromwell. He was the uh, person who revoked the Edict of Expulsion to allow the Jews back into England so they could uh, start lending to the crown. And then after Oliver Cromwell, we had the Glorious Revolution. We had uh, William and Mary of Orange come. And then almost immediately, they set up the Bank of England. Cromwell had already set the stage by removing the Edict of Expulsion to allow the moneylenders back in. Uh, and then we had the central bank. And that's uh, and this was this was well before the Rothschilds. So, it, you know, the, again, like, yeah, there was money powers before they even came about that was orchestrating this kind of arc of history to control nations through central banking and debt uh, slavery, getting the nation into debt and putting us all up as collateral, I guess, as the taxpayers. You know, we, we pay the tax on this existential debt.
0: Yeah, I mean, the use of debt. Britain didn't have a debt originally. It was very wealthy, you know, but uh, gradually as yes, it got involved in constant wars and putting you know, imperial expansion, and, and then, you know, all, all, all sorts of projects, industrial projects, need to debt as well, you know. But, oh, you've got to have the latest infrastructure. You've got to have railways. You've got to have motorways. You've got to have airports. All of that requires government spending, and government spending, when government hasn't got... Its own money. Either it involves taxing the population, or le- or lending or borrowing money from uh, from the bank. So to me, the whole thing is one big racket. Include, you know, wars, industrialism, imperialism It's all part of the one big money making scheme. Exactly, a hundred percent. Without the
1: money lending, people, or should I? Well, no, people in our individual lives, but we're talking now about nations too. They would have to grow at a sustainable rate using what productivity they have in the country and what resources are available. And then there would be an environmental and ecological responsibility to it too because you couldn't just parasitically rape the land of everything because there is a limit when you have um, a, a real monetary system. There's a limit to growth because you can't just back new paper money with gold if the gold's not there. So it places a natural limiter on expansion uh, it's only with a debt-based system and this fiat monetary system that they can do what they've done, which is just rape the entire planet, enslave entire continent. I mean, look at Africa and what they did there. Uh, you can't do that in a real monetary system because they wouldn't have the capacity to print the money to pay for these wild expansionary emissions and pillagings of, of all these continents. So, yeah, I think the central banking part's key. I mean, I always say on my other channel, the Parallel Systems Broadcast, from like the year of, let's say, well, let's go back to the Roman Empire, right up until the 1500s, there was pretty much zero inflation in terms of food prices. It was about seven ounces of silver a year for a Roman legionnaire to pay for his annual food bill. And back in medieval England, it was about the same. Uh, You know, so there was a limit there. And nowadays we've got people who just create money out of money out of money. And you get these massive mega oligarchs who can have these ideas of controlling the world. And there's people like me and you who just like normal jobs and <laughs> we're swimming in all these taxes and debts. And it's, it's, it's a product of the monetary system, I guess is my point, Paul. That's what I truly believe without that, it wouldn't have happened.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. And at um, the moment you've got, the governments are in debt, then they've, there's interest. Cause it's not just a question, is it of just, you know, it's, it's usury. It's not, it's just lending for money and then being repaid in due course. It's, it carries interest and more interest, and then there's interest on the. You know, and it just it's it's designed to drag you into a, an endless spiral. And in order to pay off that interest, you have to produce, you know, more more money. So they have to have, you know, there's an obligation to to have more and more schemes and more and more projects to to open up new more and more markets, as they put it. It does, you know, because it can never stop. It's just a it's a black hole just sucking all life into it and destroying everything ultimately. Which we seem to be getting close to the close to that point actually now that is we are just, yeah, just we just we're just gonna. I mean, uh, we're just, so. mm-hmm.
1: No, I think you're you're absolutely so right. Just... And one of the things that I really like about your work, Paul, is there's this um, um, an ethic in that of non-violence that non-violence actually must be. A part of our main ethos and this system that they've created it is purely based on violence it is all about um i mean the quickest way to get a nation into debt was to get that nation to go to war which is why we've have, had existential war since like the 50 50- i mean humans have always warred but now it's like the scale where war is one of the key profit drivers as is big farmer um god all the other poisons that they put in us. Is- Uh, and and therefore that's what we've got a poisonous world for so how did that come out in your your work Paul when you were studying uh for this empire of hypocrisy uh article that you made you was talking a lot about how this commonwealth was basically just a a constant period of marauding and exploitation
0: yeah I mean it's 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 been um it's heavily linked in with the idea of development and I wrote another thing about um development as a an entirely deceptive uh term which sounds like it's some part of some sort of naturally unfolding progress and uh, you know human evolution but it's not it's just it's just um pillaging as you said earlier it's um and it's built into the very infrastructure of uh of everything now in fact um and then the, including the commonwealth they were talking about development all along and uh and now we, we see with the same with the same with the United Nations, of course, and their Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, as the as the heart of everything that's happening now, with Ash and the Great Reset, it's the same word. So now they've just added in sustainable, but what they mean by sustainable is not that it's environmentally friendly because it can't be. They just mean it will keep going. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it's that's what it's the development that's sustainable, not the not the not, not nature <laughs> or decent human society. Uh, it's sustainable because it's gobbling up more and more. They found different different things to be turned into commodities. So they will turn nature into into a commodity, carbon emissions into a commodity, and data is the, is the great commodity uh, at the moment, which is basically means people's lives. Of course, but that's a, that's a different subject. But it is. It's, it's just a, It's just um. It's just a, it's just like a sort of a steamroller that's running down a mountainside and or a a landslide, because it it keeps getting bigger and bigger, and bigger and rolling faster and faster. Um, uh, René Genon, who's a philosopher I I like very much, talked about uh, the modern world as being like a a boulder rolling down a mountainside, ever accelerating, and it's never going to be able to stop until it hits some sort of bottom, because it's um, it's moving under its own momentum, and that's what they've created. That's the Frankenstein Frankenstein monster or Frankenstein boulders that they've uh they've unleashed with this with this debt system and and the whole idea of development and imperialism and expansion and economic growth which is impossible on a finite planet as uh, as has often been pointed out
1: yeah and I think we're at a time when the re- when the system would naturally reset and fall apart at this stage and they're trying to extend this beyond all I mean, all imagination, because like you said, they're trying to commodify nature in a way that's never been done. Uh, they're talking about listing on the New York Stock Exchange natural asset classes, NACs, which is literally going to commodify everything in nature, even the stuff that people are not using. So so the grass, the trees, uh, the underground minerals, everything will be commodified and the talk, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rothschilds, they're all over it. They're saying this is going to be a quadrillion dollar industry. It, you know, and it is literally the complete enslavement of the planet. Like they want to own everything, including you. Like they want patented products in you. So they even own you as a human being. And uh, I mean, I, I abide by natural law, Paul. I think it's impossible. You, you can't own me. I own me. That's it. Like you, I can't yeah. own you. You know that's
0: slavery, exactly. isn't it? A lot
1: of tra- what they're talking about enslaving Mother Nature and enslaving every inhabitant upon the
0: planet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they can say that they own you, but they can't own you. They can't own me or you. You know, if we don't, if we, if we don't acknowledge that we're owned, well, they can kill you. They can say they own you and threaten to kill you if you don't don't agree with them, and then they can come and kill you. But that's not owning you. And you, you know you you remain free even you know until right your dying moment.
1: So yeah, yeah, and and they wrap up these natural asset classes uh, in the exact the, those exact words that you just gave me: sustainability and conservation. Yeah, that's what they said. I've got it says here. Here's a quote from Michael Blaugrand uh, from the New York Stock Exchange. He said, "Our hope is that owning a natural asset company is going to be a way of increasing broad to a broad range of investors." That they have the ability to invest in something that's intrinsically valuable but up to this point was really excluded from the financial markets now I kind of think thing was excluded for a reason <laughs> there's a reason why we wouldn't want to trade on the stock exchange uh swamps and lagoons and forestry you know this is uh, absurd to me, but I guess they're desperate now because their current system's falling apart and they they want to find a new market to try and pump it up again with more debt and more uh, assets to back that debt with
0: yeah, exactly. You're, you're quite right. That's what it's about. And then the similar thing is true for this impact investment that I've, I've I'm often writing about because it's, it's it's the same thing, but directed toward hum towards humans, towards us and our lives. And uh, everything becomes a, a commodity. Everything becomes a product. A child's life becomes a commodity, in which they invest in, in inverted commas, in which they speculate and trade and 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 make money out of. And the, uh, the, the terrible thing is in order to do that, everything has to be, uh, under surveillance in order to be able to speculate on a child's health, education, uh, well-being. And they have to be able to know, be able to it's, yeah, measure that. They talk about, uh, measurable outcomes and that involves everything being online. Uh, Creating digital twins of everybody, which is uh, which are both sort of like t- little tokens in their in their game and their video game, We're just little tokens which they can which they can bet on and make money out of. And we have no freedom; we, we're just, uh, we're just we're just we're part of their cattle, part of their digital um, the digital assets, the commodities. Yeah, I mean it's hideous, but as you say, you know, we don't have to we don't have to go along with it. I mean, perhaps we'll get onto that later. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think so. And where do you think the United Nations fit into all of this, Paul? How far did you get in your research in terms of who they are and who do they, who do you think they represent? Because it ain't us. <laughs> no, it's
0: not, it's not. No, no. I don't, they're, they're clearly um, it's like the League of Nations before it, which was an earlier attempt to to create a. It's an attempt to create a global a global level of government. Obviously. Uh the League of nations didn't work, so they tried it again after the uh second world war I mean that's the other great things about the thing about wars is they don't just make money for these financial interests, but they also provide an excuse to ramp up their control in many different ways and one of these is to say, "Oh we yeah, no more war It's never this must never happen again. We must have worldwide organizations and structures to you know, protect, to preserve peace and need to build back better for a bold new future and all these sort of cliches that they're constantly coming out with. And the United Nations is clearly, it was clearly always intended to serve that role, same role as the Commonwealth. I mean, in fact, they're very close. They work together and they have the same principles. All these organisations that I look into always have the same language, the same aims, same principles, and they invariably partnering with each other in all their different projects either it, I mean, you can't take the united nations or the commonwealth by themselves they're part of this um this thing that uh sometimes called global governance you know global global public private partnership is uh is one term they use but i don't think that it's, it's not a partnership because isn't it? There aren't two entities there. The public, there's, there isn't a public and a private that work together. There is one entity which has, uh, two faces, you know, as its public institutional face and then its business face, but it's, a, it's the same thing behind it. Yeah. And so United Nations is one of the main, one of the main organs of this, of this entity, of this criminocracy, as I've, I've termed it for want of a better word. And um, you know, along with the, the w w e f WEF is a sort of a uh, AR front for it. That's less important, perhaps, institutionally. But it's um, it's just got it's it's, just, it's a many a many headed uh, Hydra.
1: Yeah, I think that's the best way to look at it. It is a many headed Hydra, and oftentimes the heads are masquerading as something else as well. There's a lot of people out there who think they're supporting something uh, unrelated and you find out, no, that's part of it too. Uh, it's everywhere. And yeah, I mean, I think one thing that listeners uh, would be well to do as well is look back at the, at the actual quotes of these people. Like, you know, David Rockefeller, I've got a quote here. This present window of opportunity during which a truly peaceful and interdependent world order might be built will not be open for long. We are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need right now is a major crisis, and the nations will accept the new world order. Henry A. Kissinger said this: "The one thing man fears is the unknown." When presented with this scenario, individual rights, uh, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being granted to them by a world government, a new world order. <laughs> they say these things themselves. Paul, uh, we're on the verge. Every crisis today is a global crisis. Uh, what was the slogan during COVID? Nobody's safe until everyone is safe. And then it actually translated into the vaccine too. Nobody's, vac- Nobody's. I think it was nobody's safe until everyone's vaccinated is what it become afterwards. Uh, this is really dark, isn't it? The kind of trajectory we're on. And uh, it seems to be like this, a very long way to go until the general public realise what's happening. You know, I am. I, I guess I am reassured that there's more people waking up, but it's, it's it feels like we've still got some way to go. How do you feel about it?
0: Yeah. And I think it's, I think there are a lot of people waking up. Actually, I'm more encouraged because, um, we don't need everyone. We don't need everyone to be aware of what's going on, you know, to be honest, to change something. Because, uh, you know, there's some people who are just not engaged. They're not involved, really. They're just, um, they're just, uh, spectators in the world. But a certain, I think it's, I wouldn't like, be able to give a percentage figure on how many people need to be awake to it, but there'll come a point where the invisibility of the of the overall system which has been key to its uh, advance and its survival has disappeared and when that point comes there are lots of people who work for this, this 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 global system who don't realize that they're working for it they don't realize they're working for a global mafia and 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 this is how they're persuaded to work for it you know they think they're working for you know, someone who works for the British state, you know, they they think they're working for the for Britain, for the people of Britain, or the you know for the flag, the nation. And uh, if, that, if somebody told them that uh, explained to them, no, actually they're working for a, a very dodgy group of, uh, of of global sociopaths who don't care for the British people, don't care anything about any people anywhere. Then, well, you know, they're not going to be working with the same enthusiasm at the very least, and they may well turn against them in some way. If they see something that doesn't, doesn't correspond to their individ, correspond to their individual set of sense of conscience, and the same for somebody who's working for like one of these we talked about these political movements that have been hijacked and used for other purposes, what well, if, you, if you really are an environmentalist, which I'm sure most of the people who are involved, the activists in extinction, rebellion and the rest of it, they really want to save nature, and they really want to save the planet. They don't believe us when we say that it's been used by by uh, insidious capitalist organisations for their own agenda. But if one day it becomes obvious even to them that it is, then they're not going to be playing the game anymore. And they might be pretty angry that they've been uh, taken for a ride by these people. So I think you know the, the cracks can appear very quickly with only a small amount of people being aware and spreading the knowledge. And once, you know, once any type of crack, begins to appear it tends to very quickly spread
1: and what do you think is our best shot at getting those people to see that Paul like I know obviously you put out a ton of content yourself you you write an awful lot and you write very well uh and I put out podcasts I mean there's all different people out there that are trying to give different pieces of the puzzle but in the hope that somebody just hears one bit and then wants to go further and discovers this kind of uh, cornucopia of different people that are all putting out different pieces of the puzzle for them to get, get up to speed. But uh, is there something that you think is missing from this? Because I remember when I was reading some of your articles, you spoke about how even within the anarchist movement that you was in, you saw lots of people fold when COVID happened. You saw people completely dis- betraying their own supposed beliefs and principles. Uh, so I just want to get your thoughts on that, Paul. Is there something that we could be doing to help this movement beyond what we're already doing and how do we how do we cope with the many people that seem to be falling into these traps? I mean it happens again and again and again and throughout history it's been the same as well
0: yeah some of the people fell into the traps because they were they've been led down a wrong path whether they can be led out of that path again, I don't know, but I don't think we need to I don't really worry about particular individuals who may have been may have been uh, affiliated to anarchism or any other. It's a rebellious movement before covid i think well i think I, I i see uh the, the task as being a, to address people as a whole you know and particularly perhaps people who've not been politically involved i mean i knew i know a few people here personally who uh, weren't weren't involved in anything at all weren't politically minded people until you know the lockdowns and the rest of it happened, and they suddenly said hang on what's happening here and started looking into it and um so they're not being contaminated by all the sort of uh, all the all the sort of lies that was spread in the um, in left wing movements generally about you know if you if you if you don't agree with the with the, with the lockdown and the and the vaccines that means you're reactionary or you you know you're working with fascists or you're you know you're you're suddenly a very bad person you know but people people who have not people who haven't got these prejudices and if they see something that rings true to them. And, I think if they find that do the research themselves, I think that's something important is to encourage people to, to look at it themselves, not just to cling on to the words of, uh, so called leaders who can also turn out to be, to be, uh, as fake as the, the other groups we've mentioned. You know, there are there are post COVID controlled oppositions. Uh, you know, we've been seeing this with some of these so called Leaders of the of the freedom movement, whether they've really been put there to steer people down a certain path, I think it should be part of a, of, the, of the essence of, of what of what we put out to people is to hunt for themselves at all costs to do their own research, to, to, to base their thinking on their own understanding of the world and their own feeling sense of what is right and wrong because ultimately that's that's the only place we can actually access truth. Is from, from within ourselves and through going within ourselves from an essential truth, from a, something collective, something cosmic but that comes from beyond the, uh, the mundane level of, uh, of our corrupted contemporary societies.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people I've spoken to the past two years who have just kind of become aware of things have felt awfully defeated by the reception that they've had from their families and friends when they've tried to say look what I've found look what I've discovered I really want to save you from x y and z happening here's some research and obviously we've all been there you face a (laughs) it's like a a stone wall you can't get through it and I've had the same experience with my family and uh, my response to that was to start focusing on the people who do want to hear more you know if you want to listen then let's talk and communicate but we, I guess, we can't drag people the horse to water on this one, can we? We've got to accept that uh, there are going to be always throughout history. There's going to be a swath of people, a large swath who just don't get it, uh, and that's their destiny. They will fulfill their destiny what what they've chose. But we have to focus on those that are getting up to speed. I guess is my point.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I agree. Yes. In short. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> And uh, and you know how does it look for you for you Paul in your own um, kind of personal world? Is have you started to explore alternative living or like you know to, to to have you ever gone down that path of trying to build something outside of this structure? You know we talk a lot about parallel systems uh, that are extraordinarily difficult to do in this modern world where we've all got this materialistic imprint from from birth. You know from the day we we're born, we we're given this paradigm that it's about accumulation and. Taking as much as we can get, uh, and I think there's going to be big, big shifts that are going to have to be needed for us to get back to something more. I don't know, maybe even more tribal is the word. Back to these kind of insular communities where we look after ourselves and we don't need the state. But as an anarchist, have you ever explored those kinds of communities, Paul?
0: No, no, it's a, not in that sense of a real um, separate community. Or, um, but uh, what, what I I? What I have done, I suppose, is I've tried to simplify my life. Um, also, uh, the the people I work, I live in a village, and the, there's a small group of us uh, who came together really yes, as the result of the COVID thing, and, and that's our way forward. Now that we've stopped having to talk about uh, resisting masks and the rest of it for the meantime, anyway, where we're, that, that is that is our way of seeing the future is to work to the, We've we've we sort of trying to cooperate with mutual aid. We've been all Ordering organic food together and, you know, and distributing it between ourselves and people who've got some land to, to garden on have been letting, you know, been sharing it so that we can, uh, try and sort of reestablish that sort of, um, communal self-sufficiency, which is, which, which is to me would be the, the key to a, a world after this hideous industrial system. Mm. but we, we've got a long way to go we've got a long way to go i wouldn't say we, you know we're, it's an aspiration anyway
1: yeah and i think that's good enough <laughs> right now is for us to have aspirations and hope rather than uh fall foul of this system that i mean that is a, a key part of their system isn't it? it's to poison us psychologically so we feel hopeless uh and i would argue that everything that's happened the last few years only happened through fear it, there was not i mean I've spoken to some people and they say, yeah, but Mike, they did stop me doing X, Y, and Z. I couldn't travel. And I'm like, yeah, but yeah, it's not like someone came to your door and stamped on your face. Like You could still do a lot of things. It was more fear-based, you know, and it always is going to be because there's too many of us. There's simply too many of us to control unless we allow ourselves to be put into some kind of technological system, in which case the machines can control us. Uh, And I think ultimately that's where they're trying to take us, isn't it? Yeah, I think they are
0: trying to. Um, I'm not. I mean, I don't think it will. I don't think it will work. But we've got. We've got a. You know, we've got to do a bit of uh, a bit of resisting in the meantime. I don't think it can. I don't think can actually really console everybody in the world. Well, I think that's just a sort of megalomania on their part. It's a bit like when Hitler announced the beginning of his thousand-year Reich, and it lasted twelve years. You know, <laughs> so, uh, You know, in the meantime, you know, in those twelve years, he it causes a lot of harm to a lot of people, as we know, millions of people. So um, you know, the, the sooner we can stop them in their tracks, the better. We don't want to just wait wait for them to do their worst.
1: Yeah. Excuse me. And I think, the you know, the number one thing right now for people is to not to do anything that will get them kicked out of the game prematurely, because I think it does fail. Uh, but if you take, you know, I'm sure no one listening to this is in this group, but if you take some of those injections or if you uh, get yourself involved in one of their crazy projects or even get yourself wiped out financially, uh, which is a big one. I mean, it's possible to lose it all in the coming crashes, then it will be very difficult to put up any resistance after that because your life may become. Well, first of all, you might lose your life if you get killed off by one of their vaccines as they call them or you might find yourself unable to fight back because you're so busy fighting this other battle which is taking you out of the main one you know if your health gets destroyed or if you're too busy you can't afford to pay the bills because you've got no money left because it was all in fiat money uh, something like this could really take you out of the game early and i think ultimately for me it's a case of don't try and Don't try and worry too much about what happens in 2030 years. Just take it year by year. Just keep getting to the next stage of this because at some point, I truly believe in my heart it falls apart and humanity will rise again because people will get so sick of living in a death-based system. And they'll see see people that are not in that death-based system, at least mentally, who have still got the capacity to, to love and to be empathetic and to be happy. And they'll say... Well, I want to be part of that system. What? Why are you different to me? Though that contrast will be so stark, won't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that's a good that's a good way of seeing it. That an example, and um, even just in the way you the way you act, yeah, not to be walking about with a head met- metaphorically bowed, and uh, you know to be fully in your life. Well, I you talked about not being able to look more than a year ahead, I find it difficult to look ahead at all because we just. know the way things are at the moment you just don't know what's around the corner do you You just just have to make the best of every day and do all you can to be fully alive and to and to communicate the the importance of life and truth and beauty and freedom and nature that's all that's all i can do
1: yeah me too me too paul and i think being being closer to nature is more important than ever before because There's no lies there for us. You know, their world is so toxic right now. You turn on the TV, you go on Twitter. It's just a constant barrage of, uh, we don't even know if these videos are real anymore. It's hard to tell uh, if they're fabricated or not. So uh, I think it's Mm -hmm. really uh, psychologically relieving to be in nature because it's like, you know that the tree is the tree. (laughs) It's there, it's real. It's it's not changing. They can't control that part of it. And uh, yeah, I think for me, Taking technology out of my life has been uh, a good thing, a really good thing recently.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's something we're gonna, we're all gonna have to do eventually. But um, you know, in the meantime, we'll use it for a good purpose, which is uh, this sort of conversation.
1: Yeah. So before we go into part two, uh, Paul, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your study on the Rothschilds. It's a short book. It's available online for free. And uh I think you you pulled out some great quotes in there. There were some that I'd never even heard of. and I just wanted to ask you about what you uncovered in there, what was surprising about that study. Was there anything that stood out from your work on the Rothschilds?
0: I suppose what was um most surprising for me, what I didn't know about them, was how involved they they've been in industrial development over the last two hundred years, and we all know I think we tend to know a little bit about the banking side. We think of them well they're known as a banking family. But they really um, when I look at it, there's detail there's detailed evidence available. I mean I read two books specifically about the Rothschilds and and um and both of them relate these great programmes they had had of investing in phase after phase of industrial development. Not just investing in it, but really monopolising it in many ways. It's like the railways across Europe. Copper, which was uh of course was important for it, the electrification of, of of the world and oil i mean i didn't think of the I, you know you said i did not have, i didn't realize but till i did all that reading how, how how dominant they were in the oil industry and when you put it all together it's just phenomenal and gold as well and uh, you know and zinc and uh it's just like, what? That as well. And that as well. And and they were involved in uh, lending the money to governments for, you know, we were going to embark on great schemes which need vast amounts of these raw materials which they were effectively selling. So that was one of the things that struck me, was the sheer scope and range of their development, of their involvement, rather, in, in development. And secondly, was the way that they've... Um, disguised that and hidden that and deliberately concealed that behind front after front after front and um, one of the one of the authors I read was called Jean, mm-hmm. it was a book in French actually that I, I came across completely randomly in a, in a second-hand bookstore in a local market yeah, and I thought oh somebody's handing that to me for a good reason so yeah. and he, he was um, he was explaining how the, the, the different methods, he was in a, a history of Historian of economics, and he was explaining the range of different methods that they use to control companies. You know, it's not the same thing every time. It's not just that they own all the shares, you know, that they they buy out companies. They, they you know, they take a sort of shell of a company and reconstitute it and have one of their men in there. But, it's, you know, you won't see a casual observer won't see that it's the Rothschilds or even see what, that it's one of their front companies. You know, it's very complex because. Because what they've re- what they realize is that if ever people did realize the extent of their global monopoly, they'll be outraged. People wouldn't tolerate it. They'd feel like I did when I discovered all this stuff. You know, it's just like what, what, how can we put up with this? And it's absolutely outrageous. Um. So yeah, I think that was the that was the main that was my main reaction from my research, which I, I tried to communicate in this fairly small booklet. But which is all well, everything in it is 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 carefully referenced but, I mean you know I double checked it all there's, there's 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 not speculation in there. I'm not just saying off the top of my head oh the Rothschilds own everything I just uh, it's all set out,
1: yeah, and I don't know if listeners know this, but when j P. Morgan died, it was found out that he only owned about twenty thirty percent of his own bank, the rest of it was owned by the Rothschilds, so all along he was just an agent of the Rothschilds and you're right, that is how they do this. That is how all of them do it, is, uh They have to have many different agents and shills and uh, people working for them. It was the same in South Africa uh, where they sent across... Um, Cecil Rhodes he was just an agent of the banking clans too uh, and they give them unlimited amounts of funds to achieve their objectives you know to buy up all of the industry in a country uh, but you're right they can't do it in their own name because if they were seen to be doing that people would realize it's a kind of global monopoly that's being created uh, which enables us to have this <laughs> fabled global governance uh, so yeah there has to be like a whole hall of mirrors doesn't that to try and stop people from figuring out how it all works
0: yeah there does well I mean it must- and that's the interesting thing really now, that this is becoming more obvious. And they've got unlimited, they've got unlimited amounts of money essentially now. I think you can say that, uh, unlimited. Yeah, and so so that's how they've been able to fund all these different fake political groups and institutions and all these various global leadership schemes. It's not just the WF. This is just institution after institution, layer after layer, organization, think tank after think tank after think tank because they've got unlimited money and they're pouring it in. But the important thing is that they all appear to be different. It all appears just to be a sort of chorus of approval for the, for the way forward for, for humanity. But, you know, when people like you or, you or I look into it, it, it's obvious that it's all coming from the same source and I think that it's important to, 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 to encourage people to look at the same things themselves, not to take our word for it but to look into them themselves just any any uh, rabbit hole as they call it leads to the same place any thread that you unpick is gonna lead you back there but have a look for it and see for yourself i would say to people and you'll you'll understand what we're talking about here
1: yeah and uh i think it was just a about a year or so ago that the rothschilds uh, well it was lynn the of rothschild i think she actually married into the family but it's a it's a Partnership between the Rothschilds and the Vatican, the Council for Inclusive Capitalism. So again, it's that double speak, isn't it? Inclusive capitalism. Uh, are you up for a bit of that, Paul? Inclusive capitalism?
0: Yeah, that's one of their great words, inclusive. It means you can't escape. It's like a prison there, a concentration <laughs> yeah. Council. yeah,
1: yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's it. It's like, yeah, they the tie us up in these, uh, double speak words. Uh, everything's about inclusive, sustainable. Uh, and it's absolutely outrageous how people fall for it. It's like, how on earth can the people who did things like the deep water horizon oil spill be the solution to environmental problems? It makes no sense. It's the same people who caused the pollution that we are now told. Are the big capitalist structures that are gonna fix it all. And I'm not anti-capitalist, but what I am is I you know, anti-bullshit. <laughs> it's just ridiculous that the people who caused the world's problems are now the people who are gonna fix it. And yet the price for us to pay for fixing it, Paul, is to give up all of our rights and and to accept blame for these problems. Like like it was me and you that were causing these problems in our simple little lives here, you in there in France, me in Poland, as <laughs> as though we caused the global pollution problem. It's absolutely outrageous, but Uh, Young people are falling for it, and I think that's a key part of it all, isn't it? It's getting the young people indoctrinated to these ideas.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's getting them indoctrinated into the idea that the uh, solution is what they've got, you know, under the counter, ready to sell them. The idea that you can set the solution to uh, environmental destruction to be yet more manufactured technology, you know, whether wind turbines or uh, solar panels and, you know, carbon... um, they like call carbon sinks or whatever they call it. You know, they, it's just, they're just they're just selling just a whole new wave of uh, of industry, the fourth industrial revolution. They even call it that. It's it's just more and more industry. And um, there's a good point made by Corey Morningstar, who is a, a, quite a very important researcher on these issues to do with climate, the climate scam, who pointed out that the whole visual image of environmental websites over the last twenty years has changed. It used to be always pictures of nature as you'd expect from a, an environmental organisation like Greenpeace and the rest of nature animals and seas and things now it's always it's, you know it's, it's wind farms and solar panels and it's, it's they're just they're just the, they've just turned the whole thing into a marketing um, the marketing wing of their industry tragically
1: yeah yeah i agree and uh yeah it's it's pretty shocking to see just how easily fooled uh, they are but I think yeah it's a long it's a long arc of history and I think the young people today are, are probably more heavily propagandized than in, any other point in history I might be wrong on that I'm not sure about maybe uh, Nazi Germany how bad it would have been there in school but I just think the devices the access 24-7 to a phone uh, makes it probable that we've never had such from birth to to teenagehood in pro- propagandization of people I mean I see children as young as like one with a damn phone and yeah, they're being programmed constantly.
0: Yeah, man, that's definitely part of the um that's definitely part of the scheme is to uh to brainwash the uh the young generation. You know, the very youngest generation who've not no known, known anything other than this, not known anything other than this world that they've created. And uh how you get through, how you get through to them. Well, I don't know, you know, I don't know how you I suppose I think what I don't think you do. I think you can allow them to see something that they know already. I think that uh, every human being of whatever age really knows in their heart that, that nature is wonderful and that they, they like being in the countryside and that they don't like they don't like being tied to a screen. Really, ultimately, I think that 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 that, that basic innate sense of worth and freedom will 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 overcome their brainwashing that's 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 my um that's my faith that i have in in humanity
1: yeah and i share it and i think it's a it's a very good faith to have Uh, i used to work with young people who were brought up in cities and usually in really bad situations most of them had never seen the countryside before they'd spent their entire life in some shitty council estate or you know usually with an abusive parent at home or an alcoholic parent or whatever it was. And we used to take them to the countryside and they'd all come along with the phones. uh, And we'd tell them, you know, put your phone down, leave it in the car or whatever. Uh, And as soon as they got out there, Paul, in those fields, and as soon as they got out there in the trees and we was doing woodcraft and whatever it was we was doing that day with them, They were in joy, you know, absolute joy. They were happy, you you know. They were smiling. They were fun. There was laughter, Uh, and yeah, it was a, you know, immediately, immediately, you could see the change in them. They could see the energetic change in them. Like they was giving off a different energy entirely. Uh, And I think that'll always be the case, you know. I've had, I got some rabbits a while back for our farm, uh, and uh, the guy we got them off had brought them up in cages, and as soon as we got them to our farm. They wanted to escape those cages constantly, even though that's all they knew. And we gave them a better life than he did. And as soon as they got out from that cage, you know, they had this, this. You could see even in the animals, they had a desire for freedom that they didn't even know existed. And once they tasted it, that was it. They wanted to be out all the time, and ultimately, they they, they escaped and <laughs> they never came back. They found we live in a forest, so they found true freedom. That um, I hope that I hope they survived. Put it that way because we've got a lot of predators, but. Yeah. I think every animal, whether human or non-human has that instinctual capacity and desire for freedom. And that'll never go, you know, put someone in a prison cell, they'll look out the window at some point and realize there's something better out there. Uh, before we end part one, Paul, uh, I just wanted to ask you if there's a good place for listeners to find you. We mentioned your Substack and Winter Oak. Uh, and do you have any projects coming up that you can direct listeners to also? Uh,
0: those are the those are the, uh, the places. Yeah. in truck and, um, and the Substack, Paul could next Substack. Um, well, I will have uh, I will have various other projects emerging in view course, but uh, nothing that I can point anyone to at the moment. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, well, listeners, yeah. I would
1: say please check out Paul's writing. Uh, he's got a lot of books that I think will be of real interest to you. It, these are the books that are directly related to the things that we speak about here. And uh, and your writing is fantastic, Paul, and you're very prolific. You put out a lot. So I'm going to put the links in the description in part two paul i really just want to go deep onto the idea of um anarchism i want to talk more about that and also to see how you link that up to uh, something higher than yourself something more spiritual that's not just materialistic so uh thank you so much for joining us paul it's been a pleasure and i'm looking forward to part two
0: thanks what you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.
1: Peace for all
0: men and women, for all men and women, for all
1: men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all
0: time. Honestly, for blessing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence.